0: Thank you to Susanna and to Alex for the invitation to do this. Um, I've taken the you know the label as experimental seminar um, pretty liberally, and that what I'm presenting today is going to be a bit of a mixture of some thoughts that I have captured in writing just to get things going. Um, but I'm in the midst of the project that I'm going to be starting uh, that I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, it was a project that started about a year ago with the first set of Four one-day workshops that ran across May and June. Um, it was a bit of summertime to start getting to grips with what kind of uh, data we collected and what to do with them. Uh, presented a first colloquium in October, and now I'm revisiting this project, um, starting again with a fresh set of workshops this week. Um, so all of these themes on interdisciplinarity and on things like the relationship between movement and spoken language are very fresh. I'm very much working through them, so this is, if you like, a bit of an improvisational um, discussion, and so feedback um, from you is very welcome. Um, interestingly enough, I mean, we're doing an interdisciplinary panel, but um, among the, the, the panels that we've seen so far, we're a fairly uniform panel in that I think we all identify as social anthropologists. Uh, but at Susanna's invitation, we've come together to explore the interdisciplinarity of our research interests, Um, what we might broadly call um, creative arts or imaginative practices. And social anthropology, of course, has um, no exclusive claim on these, and in fact, um, I would say these have been fairly minor areas of inquiry in comparison to um, some of our our standard discourses on on kinship, exchange, power, etc. Now, being an ethnographer of an imaginative to the practice is a very tricky business, in that the inquiry, uh, the object of inquiry, is fleeting, and it's changeable. It is potentially imperceptible. If we're thinking about how people imagine, and so the question, or not, uh, the question of whether or not to fully participate in the practice uh, as research, looms very large for me, and I have taken a, a heavily participatory route to my research thus far. Um, And on the one hand, this gives the advantage um, in that it allows an immediate bodily encounter between the ethnographer and the practice of study. And for me, this opened up um, new experiential knowledge, new questions, ways that I might try to articulate that experience to other people who are participating in my research. Um, So it was um, a way for really diving into the research and feeling the way through the questions um, at a very uh, immediate bodily level. But on the other hand, there is a real danger of becoming lost in the practice itself. And this is something I'll return to at the end of my section in terms of um, when you engage in a practice that is interdisciplinary by nature. um, To what extent do you need to consciously maintain some degree of disciplinarity in order to not lose the contribution that your own intellectual perspective and toolkit can bring. Uh, Questions of how to gather data on imaginative practices and use of technology come into play. Um, So questions have been raised in this project that I'm going to discuss are things like are we more or less faithful to the experience of the practice if we capture it through photography or audio or video recordings versus giving more weight to conversations with other practitioners or our own descriptive writing of the events. Um, As I said before, I've tended towards the side of heavy participations, uh, but having to recognize the limitations of perspective that this methodological choice will entail. And even after dealing with the practical questions of participation and data capture, the object of study itself remains a very slippery fish. Uh, So when people ask me, what do I do? I say, well, I'm an an anthropologist interested in dance. Um, Dance would normally fall into uh, an interdisciplinary area called uh, dance studies. And the focus here tends to be either on describing the dance as some kind of reified identity. So a lot of the work that you'll find within dance studies will focus on specific dance styles or choreographies that have been recorded and possibly codified to some extent as they've emerged during particular historical moments. Alternatively, the, fall, uh, the focus may fall on celebrated choreographers, um, individuals who have you know, pushed different styles or aspects of dance practice and performance forward. Um, But neither the focus on the dance as an entity or famous dancers tends to give us a complete picture of the ways in which the practice of dance affects life on a daily basis. Uh, The early anthropology of dance made important inroads here, so some of you may be familiar with Evans Pritchard's uh, 1928 article on the dance, where he was focusing on the beer dance as a means of uh, eliciting sexual play among the adolescents and uh, modes of intergenerational display and competition. Um, So that may be familiar to you as as one of the earlier examples of of anthropology uh, perspective on dance. But anthropology of dance as a a kind of research area in its own right didn't really get going until the 1970s. Um, And the developments since then can actually be traced very nicely in this lovely volume um, co-edited by one of our colleagues in the room, Linda V. Kringelbach, as well as Jonathan Skinner. Um, And in more recent works within anthropology of dance, identity politics loom very large in these recent analyses um, with a strong emphasis on how dance can be a medium for negotiating categories of ethnicity and ideas of what traditional culture and reinvented culture um, might mean, uh, particularly in the context of increasingly transnational opportunities for performance and display. In writing the concluding chapter of this volume, I noted that the semantic ambiguity of dance gives the space for this negotiation, because acts of dancing may be simultaneously interpreted as perhaps just a fanciful commodity for global tourism, or equally could be um, interpreted as a a subversive commentary on existing power structures. In thinking about recent developments in an anthropology of dance, I also recognize that the compulsion for people to engage in in dancing, either as performers or as audience members or lay participants, um, is, is compelling on the fact of its bodily immediacy. So other dancing bodies are very hard to ignore in an ethnographic space. And so in spite of the fact that there is such ambiguity about what the dance might mean, what the dancers might intend to do, through the movement, there is something very compelling about being in a space where someone is moving. It calls attention in a way that um, perhaps other activities in the normal flow of life don't quite call our attention, um, begging to be uh, observed and, and thought through. And all this is to say that um, in spite of its bodily immediacy and in a way that I think makes dance very prominent as an object of study, um, I want to say up front that the notion that dance is somehow a universal language because of the fact it's bodily and we have bodies so it's all accessible. Um, this is a, a phrase that um, makes my blood boil because the assumption that because we have and are bodies that we should somehow be able to translate in some kind of universalist way what is intended and what is, what's happening. Through dancing is a very naive assumption, and it's um, it's very unfortunate because it tends to reproduce this dualism between the bodily is somehow grounded <coughs> and universal and something that we can all access and understand, versus spoken language and this polariz- uh, polarizing between movement, gesture, and spoken word, written text mm-hmm. is one that I've had to confront in this project that I'm going to discuss as a um, you know a background assumption that lingers always uh, there even when we're trying to overcome it. Um, But just to say that dance needs to be treated um, as a vehicle for meaning making in its own right. We can't assume um, that it is somehow easier to access, easier to interpret, um, is less uh, open to multiple layers of meaning than spoken language. So all this, with all this in mind, I'd like to um, to take a somewhat unusual direction in presenting my current interdisciplinary project uh, for discussion for the rest of this seminar. Um, and I have to admit that I'm already having some really sad thoughts about this. But here we are. and you may be just as uncertain as I am in this moment as to why I'm doing this. And in fact, there's a feeling inside that makes me feel like I've swallowed a tree. (laughs) But, as I hope I'll convey, there's a certain openness that comes through movement. A feeling of potential for transformation that some people might even relate to as spiritual. But fear not, we will return to the standard seminar format (laughs) fairly (laughs) soon. you say. Thank for that. I'm not sure if I should be moved by this or I should hide my head in shame for you. But you must watch and you must listen. If you feel yourself ripped off, come back to this present moment, because dancing bodies demand attention. So what is this? What this is, what this was, (laughs) um, is something that one person in the audience hopefully will recognize. Uh, it was a, the sequence of movement was co-constructed by 12 people in a workshop on Tuesday on physical storytelling, yeah, uh, led by a uh, contemporary performer, Yale uh, Caravan. And I'll get to how we got to these workshops in a moment, and I give a bit more of the backstory of this project. But this was the end of a workshop where we'd been moving for the better part of four hours, thinking through um, inspirations for different kinds of qualities. The overall aim of the workshop was thinking about how we can characterize and tell a story through physical movement, but not in a terribly literal way. So a lot of the workshop was about using ideas. Um, in this case, we used prompts of the elements so we thought about what would fire feel like in the body? What would water feel like in the body? Would it feel different if it's a meandering brook versus an ocean versus a tsunami? What happens when the water starts freezing or it starts crashing into other bodies of water in the space? Of course, we're all moving around together. And towards the end of this workshop, we we stood in a circle, we were um, 12 participants in addition to the workshop leader, Um, each of us just came up with a gesture, so we put together the series just going around the circle, and then the concluding part was actually adding the text to it. But the theme of the day had been very much about letting the body speak, trying to um, shut down the internal dialogue that was always about decision making and evaluating what the movement needed to be and needed to convey. So we each took a turn going around the circle and in the moment trying to to basically give some kind of narrative text to that sequence of movements. Um, So some of these movements, I mean, I think at the time this movement came, uh, for me was, um, I think, scraping rats off of my feet. Um, For other people, I think um, this was a bird. Uh, They were trembling, walking through the jungle. So there were any number of potential interpretations of that movement, but the idea was that the movement was guiding the text, but there certainly was never a one-to-one relationship between the movement and the text. Now this is sort of the reverse of what we ended up doing in an earlier stage of this project. So the workshops we we're running this week have been in response to the first stage of this project, Ancient Dance and Modern Dancers, which started about a year ago. Um, it's funded by TORCH, the Oxford Research Center for Humanities. Um, and this was one of the, the first networks to be funded, and it was very much about encouraging very explicitly interdisciplinary research, um, in this case between the humanities and the social sciences. So just to tell you a bit more about the project and some of the thinking that it's prompted, both in terms of the content and on interdisciplinarity, uh, I wanted to address one of the questions that Susanna had sent us as a prompt for thinking about what are we talking about with interdisciplinary, what kinds of interdisciplinarity are there? and we certainly had some references in the first seminar of the series are we talking about a more instrumental uh, interdisciplinarity where people are bringing their own tools from their disciplinary boxes and fundamentally maintaining those but bringing those into a space where perhaps we're working on a topic that can't be sufficiently addressed by one toolkit versus a more conceptual interdisciplinarity where what is created in the encounter is not strictly speaking one or the other Uh, but becomes something else in its methods and intention. Um, I'd say that this project, Ancient Dance and Modern Dancers, which started last year, um, on the surface of it started out as fairly instrumental in that it was classicists, my colleagues um, Helen Slaney and Sophie Boxberger, um, wanted to explore a form of of performance called, uh, translated as um, Ancient Roman Pantomime, Tribuidia Saltata, It's a 1st to 5th century Greco-Roman performance form that can't really be recreated. There are a lot of references to it in the text, but there aren't sufficient images to really be able to actually try to recreate. Um, But they were interested in what happens when people engage with the form in trying to perform it, engage with it in a bodily way, rather than through the translations of the text and piecing together the idea of what it is and what it could be through textual and visual representations. So this was, you know, not a very sophisticated research question, but um, basically what kinds of knowledge are produced when there's a bodily engagement with this form versus a textual, historical engagement with the form? And we were questioning, you know, where does this fit within classics? Is it radical? Because it's bringing in a performative element. I mean, my colleagues were saying, people were saying, why on earth would you want to bring in people to try and dance this stuff? Um, For me, I was thinking, you know, what kind of research can I call it field work? It's not really ethnography as such. These are very constructed situations where we brought people together for workshops with particular tasks. And I'm going to have to go through very quickly. So the task was basically that we brought a group of classicists and dancers, self-identified, as it turned out there was a bit of overlap between those categories, Um, in for one-day workshops. This is my colleague Helen. She gave a briefing at the start of the day to say, this is what we think we know about Trigua Altata. Um, We know that it was performed in masks, but without a hole in it, so it was was something that was moved rather than sung or spoken by the performer. It was performed by a solo performer who had to potentially embody all the characters and all the states of whatever narrative um, he or she was trying to convey. Um, In this case, we used a text from Ovid's Metamorphoses um, that was describing a journey from the underworld and then the madness of Afanas and Eno, So we have our dancers in classes together, give them a bit of a briefing, give them a mask, a pallium, a cloth that could be used as a supporting prop, um, and three hours to work in pairs to come up with something. We had a commissioned piece of music that was seven minutes long that had um, some aspects of the text. Uh, We gave very little direction in terms of what they should do. They could use the music or not. They could use the mask or not. At the end of the day, we came together, watched each other's performances in progress, and then had a bit of a debrief about what was what was happening through the engagement with that material. Um, questions of translations arose. Um, and the, the phrase that I put there on what could it be otherwise is um, drawing on the work of choreographer William Forsyth. Um, he uses this phrase very often to try and not get dancers stuck into stereotypical representations of movement. Um, so I've, I've taken some workshops with some of his dancers and through long improvisation sessions. There might be a verbal prompt about setting a scene in which you're moving through, but then the the question, what could it be otherwise? A different level of abstraction, a different level of meaning, different associations. And this this journey of what could it be otherwise, how can we abstract, how can we get into different layers of meaning through movement is a theme that keeps coming up again and again, um, particularly amongst the professional dancers on this project. Um, I'm going to, I'm afraid, not do good credit, but uh, the the text involved the appearance of the fury, so some questions also arose in terms of um, cultural familiarity, uh, historical knowledge. Could the fury be there in the moment if an audience didn't live in a world of furies? So, connections with with the past, um, the, the extent to which we imagine the world in which the performers are trying to um, you know, recreate that setting um, all arose through these workshops, and so just some thinking themes that I'll touch on, but not say much about at the moment. Um, but the thinking that this has prompted for me is thinking about the connection between action versus linguistic signs, and here I'm following dance anthropologist Brenda Farnell, who's really challenging us to try and uh, not make such rigid distinctions, but see these as two sides of the same coin of human meaning making. Um, I raised before the ambiguity of action sci- uh, signs, which you need a direct translation of the text for to be able to engage with a performance of ancient Roman dance, for instance. Um, the idea of joint versus solo interpretations of the text. A lot of the movement representations are not done in isolation by a single dancer or choreographer, but very much co-constructed. Exercise. so um, how do we read meaning and interpretation when it's a a joint venture, Um, and the cultural and historical relevance, can we take the content of of, um, Togoria Saltada seriously in the present day? Um, These were workshops that we've run today, uh, this week, uh, making links with other storytelling forms, but as I'm out of time, I'm going to uh, move past those at the moment. Um, But where I want to leave off and return, hopefully, in the discussion, is our abstract prompted us to think about how engagement as anthropologists with imaginative practices prompts us to think about the role of individual agency within the context of social conventions. And so I think it's putting you know, it very well in terms of you know, where does the individual appear in moments of social continuity and social rupture. And this is the area that I'm struggling to really get to grips with in this project um, the, the danger of being subsumed by the practice. Um, The dancers who are engaging with this practice are very much about (laughs) developing a personalized practice, and it's a dialogue of, it's all about questions, it's all about what can we do otherwise, Uh, there's Mm -hmm. no wrong answer. And so finding the social that is framing uh, that journey of personal practice um, is one that is easy to lose sight of. Um, I'm wondering if the the main emphasis here is in the overall uh, social experience of storytelling and how we... Decide which stories need to be told and how we tell them. I'll leave it there for a moment because I know I've uh, traipsed over my, my time on it. Uh, thank you. Okay, <laughs> hey, hi, hi
1: everyone, thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to be talking today about the anthropology, sometimes also called the sociology of literature, and this is going to be some sort of preliminary notes towards a social anthropology of literature, again dealing with some of these issues of convention versus creativity. So the anthropology sociology of literature is an inherently interdisciplinary area of study that has long involved a mutual cross-fertilization between disciplines, In Marilyn Strathern's terms, it might therefore more correctly be called transdisciplinary because it, quote, brings disciplines together in contexts where new approaches arise out of the interaction between them, but to a heightened degree, end quote. But of course, it also draws on cultural studies, which is an interdisciplinary field of study that um, has brought together people trained in different disciplines as well. So I'll use insights gleaned from a variety of scholars who are explicitly working in these transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary fields to explore the relationship between literary conventions and individual creativity in the context of my research on Afghan refugee poets in Iran. But in the first part of my talk, I actually want to address the question of what an anthropological perspective can actually contribute to the study of literature. It might seem counterintuitive. What's the use when we already have flourishing fields of literary theory, comparative literature, literary history, and literary canons in most of the world's major languages, about which there's already masses and masses of commentary. What more can we say? So I'd like to offer some suggestions. Firstly, anthropology helps us to look beyond our categories. As usual, it helps us to take a step back and denaturalize our own assumptions, which might include considering James Joyce's Ulysses to be the pinnacle of human literary achievement. Mm -hmm. Um, It might mean considering only written text to be literature. It might mean considering our modes of appreciation and criticism to be the norm and something everyone around the world should strive for. It It might mean subscribing to the romantic view of art as the spontaneous upwelling of artistic inspiration molded by the hands of individual creative genius, which is very much, yes, a romantic idea not necessarily shared around the world. But instead, we should be able to see what the novel has in common with, let's say, oral epic poems, and we should be able to query the creative process cross-culturally. So if we were to find the lowest common denominator linking the oral epic poem, the realist novel, and more recently perhaps the blog post or the tweet, we could see them as verbal expressive genres, verbal in the sense of pertaining to words rather than synonymous with oral. We can also see them as texts, and this is something that the anthropologist Karen Barber has written extensively about, and she's got a groundbreaking book on the anthropological study of texts, persons, and publics, Um, and the study of texts, regardless of whether they're oral or written. And this is an inherently interdisciplinary, perhaps transdisciplinary work, bringing together literary and sociological theories, and Barber's own background played into this uh, approach that she took because her first degree was actually in English literature, as she points out, and she also spent many years touring as a member of a Yoruba theatre company in Nigeria (coughs) while she was a lecturer there. So she has lots of different (coughs) insights from different places. And texts, she writes, are tissues of words woven together and given form. They are, quote, the hot spots of language, concentrations of linguistic productivity, Forms of language that have been marked out to command heightened attention, and sometimes to stimulate intense excitement, provoke admiration and desire, or be the mainstay of memory. Unquote. So that is a fairly broad definition which leaves a lot of room for huge variation cross culturally, and perhaps we might see literature globally as a polythetic category, as Needham said about kinship and other anthropologists have said about the category of emotion. So that is a category based more on family resemblances rather than strict identity. Okay, so the second contribution, I would argue, is this need to look beyond individual creators, which is the bias of the story of literature as it's usually told. And I have to say that this is the case both in European literatures, but also in in, uh, Persian literary history tends to be presented as a series of discrete great works by great individuals. But as with any other cultural artefact, as we all know, anthropology looks for context and the role these might play in social relationships, what structural patterns there might be regarding who becomes a writer, what kind of genres are preferred by what classes, by what audiences, other social groups, how do genres change in relation to social change, and what relationship does literature have to power. Now, in this interdisciplinary um, field called cultural studies, it's been very much informed by a whole host of Marxist social and literary theorists, including Raymond Williams, Terry Eagleton, who've told us a lot about art and, and literature as reflecting and entrenching dominant social ideologies, so this is obviously very useful for anthropologists. But another um, anthropologist, sociologist, who's dealt extensively with cultural production is Pierre Bourdieu, and He's come up with a theory of the field of cultural production which seeks to relate individual um, authors, um, artists, to uh, a whole host of other relationships. And um, I've sort of, speaking of of models, as we have for the past couple of weeks, um, we might need to consider all of these in relationship to each other as a sort of tangled web of potential influences and relationships. Relationships between patrons, publishers, audiences, literary genres and traditions, various discourses, various um, media for dissemination, and of course the author's own backgrounds, etc., all of which culminate in producing the literary work. And um, so Bourdieu has something interesting to say about that, because he says that, quote, the theory of the field leads to both a rejection of the direct relating of individual biography to the work of literature, uh, or the relating of social class of origin to the work, and also to a rejection of internal analysis of an individual work, or even of intertextual analysis. And this is because what we have to do is all these things at the same time, unquote. Okay, so I'll come back to the field of cultural production. Well, I'll just show you a diagram in a bit. But um, the final contribution, I would argue, is the ability to take us beyond the canonical. So... Official literary history is often confined to a sequence of major, perhaps minor, poets and writers who over time become canonical, though the shape of that canon does change over time. So the writers who are included in this canon are often the ones that have had some kind of close relationship, even if it's an antagonistic one, with power. They're the ones who gain renown or notoriety, and they're the ones who are remembered. But all those hopeful would-be writers beavering away by night amateur poetry circles, failed experiments, one-hit wonders, strange hybrid genres and manuscripts with a great big rejected stamp on them. In short, all the weird and wonderful products that never have the privilege of consecration, they fall by the wayside. So even when such practices are ephemeral and destined to be forgotten in history, they are nonetheless developments in the history and spread of literary forms that are worth studying. The global literary historical work of the Italian um, literary theorist Franco Moretti is an example of this, and he shows that it is the rise, fall, and spread of genres and devices rather than specific canonical texts that ought to be the true object of knowledge in literary history. And he says, indeed, genre organizes, quote, a whole population of publications which continually deviate, innovate, branch out, flourish for a while, fail, and are eclipsed, end quote. And um, Barbara, in another of her books called Africans' Hidden Histories, actually talks about this as well. She talks about the newly literate people in colonial Africa who had a great zest for uh, creating new literary genres. And so she argues that it's precisely what she calls obscure aspirants to elite status who are the greatest innovators. And for anthropologists, all of these would probably fall under the rubric of popular culture and therefore be worthy of study. Okay, so now... Uh, I'll leave Bartine up for now. Um, okay, so this is a model, of, since we're on the topic of models for the last few weeks, this is the model par excellence of um, Bourdieu trying to fit the entire uh, field of literary production in 19th century France into a simple two-dimensional model, and it's obviously quite reductive and problematic, and I'm not going to talk much about it here, Um, but it's an example of something that you might try to do, or you might try not to. Um, And so even though... Right. um, It's based on a series of dualisms, essentially between um, market principles of commercial art and then pure art at the other end, art for art's sake, autonomous art, and another dualism between um, a high degree of consecration at the top, a low degree of consecration at the bottom, right-wing politics that corner left you know it's all sort of quite simple but trying to apply this to afghan literary production in iran just gave me a massive headache so i I decided to i thought you might be amused by the fact that you tried to do this if you wanted to okay so i worked in my doctoral project um I, i worked with a group of afghan refugee poets in Iran, and I have to say, this was not oral poetry. These were this was literary, uh, written poetry. Although the, the sociality of it, the fact that they would um, meet and recite their poetry to each other, was a major part of it. So it wasn't just that they were, they were reading it and disseminating it. They were they were reading it out loud as well, very much. Um, and as you can see, there were a lot of young people, a lot of young women participating in this as well. I wish I could tell you more about ethnographic context, but Alex is about to flash a five-minute sign at me, so (laughs) yes, Um, so I'm afraid if you're interested we can talk about it later, but basically rather than attempting to shoehorn the Afghan poets, institutions, and genres into a reductive scheme that can be represented visually in two dimensions like Bourdieu does, I actually think it's more fruitful to take up his other idea that the field of cultural production is a site of assertions and struggles over artistic value and to examine the rhetorical claims and counterclaims that people make, and the sometimes vehement denunciations of each other's literary styles that they make. And Bourdieu calls this position-taking. Okay, so I will um, present to you two poems by two young female poets, um, who might, uh, they kind of represent (coughs) the ideal, typical representations of two particular currents, that exist at the same time. And the literary scene in contemporary Iran is full of these kinds of position takings because there are a lot of different types of genres of of poetry and ideas about what poetry should achieve, what function it fulfills in society, that are all kind of floating around at the same time. And these include various classical genres that have been updated um, with more contemporary concerns. um, And they also include very avant-garde Experiments that people have given the term postmodern poetry to. Um, okay, so on the left is Zahra Hossein Zadeh, um, who is a representative of the more neoclassical kind of style. And Moral Taheri is the the lady in the middle. I wanted to crop her out, but then I thought it was actually interesting to show her with her two Iranian friends, as that's relevant to what I'm going to say. Um, okay, so, and she's more of an avant-garde kind of rebellious poet so Zahra Hussein Zahra was born to a family of illiterate and landless former peasants from Afghanistan who were from the ethnic Hazara the Hazara ethnic group uh, which has historically been oppressed in Afghanistan and her life is a striking example of the social advancement made possible for Afghans by migration to Iran She has a degree in Islamic studies from a religious university in um, Mashhad, the city where I worked. And she's a pious Muslim who maintains impeccable hijab at all times, as you can see. But at the same time, she embodies a kind of Islamic cosmopolitanism, because her dress is is an innovation on typical Iranian hijab. Um, It's quite different. This is uh, Afghan embroidery. And I think this this is probably a custom-made outfit that she might have commissioned herself. Okay, so her poem is here. I'm mm, I will leave it up there and I'll talk about it. B- basically, it's in uh, a neoclassical style. It has rhyme and metre in the original, which I haven't really quite managed to render here. Um, but it's the story of a child bride, so my mother sold me into marriage for five royal coins. My green and flowery pencil was left beside the school, and eyeliner was exchanged for black shadows, black eyes. In my twelfth year, I had two children in my arms, a son who became like his father, aggressive, whatever you can imagine. Essentially, you know, her husband divorces her. My husband sent a divorce paper, but he would come to see me sometimes to ridicule me. I have a complaint against God, journalist. Have you written it? Tonight, three fishes will be entangled in the river. Sorry, I had to skip over part of it. Um, so this is a conversation between a young woman and a journalist who's recording her story, and you know it's, it's sort of it's experimental in the sense that it's this dialogue, which is an innovation on the ghazal um, genre which she's writing in. The neoclassical, the new ghazal basically is usually narrative. It has elements of dialogue in it. It has elements of social realism in it. All of which are quite new, and um, and it sort of helps Zahra to. Both to express her kind of her vision of Islamic modernity, which includes a space for women's rights and critique of um, the negative conditions of uh, sort of more traditional versions of, of patriarchy. Um, and so she is her innovation takes that form. but at the same time it helps her to achieve a measure of social mobility within Iran because It is acceptable for publication in Iran. It wouldn't need to be censored. And so she's actually had a lot of success. She's won prizes at festivals. She's had her work published. Her work is probably one of the only profit-making titles of a particular Afghan publisher who publishes little books of poetry. Okay, And then this poem by um, Maral Taheri is, I don't think I have time to read it, unfortunately but basically it describes a sexual encounter and kind of veiled language language and all kinds of strange um, sort of technical devices. And this is an example of this kind of postmodern avant-garde poetry. Um, And so I'm interested in how these two young women, who are essentially from the same social background, with some small differences, there are differences in ethnicity, um, why one has chosen one particular style and one has chosen another. And I think it's essentially to do with the audiences that they're trying to reach, because as Barbara points out, every genre has a particular audience that it is interpolating, it's, a, a, it's targeting a particular audience, it's a relationship, almost a code between uh, a poet and a particular audience. So Zahra is, is trying to reach the sort of the religious intellectuals of Iran, um, whereas model And this is sort of signaled by their dress and their various techniques, other sort of technologies of the self, including how they dress and how they behave. Maral is is not a practicing Muslim um, and dresses in fashion, which is much more akin to upper-class parts of Tehran. She's signaling a much more Western or secular kind of cosmopolitanism and trying to tap into the cultural capital of it and the potential for social mobility that that affords her. So I think um, because they come from more or less the same social milieu, it's hard to be very deterministic about which way they're going to go. I mean, there are differences in ethnicity, as I said, which I could go into more, but essentially there is a personal choice. There's uh, There's an element of personal creativity involved in that choice. But once it's there, the genre itself opens up kind of a path for that particular poet to follow, Um, both in her poetry and also in other aspects of her life. And uh, as Caroline was saying, I think um, the element of identity politics is therefore essential to understanding the differences between the genres. Uh, I can end now. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, There's lots of things I've had to sort of skip over, but I'd be um, glad to take them in your questions. Well, thanks a lot.
2: Right. Thank you so much. It's has uh, been uh, very, very uh, interesting for me so far and I've learned so much that I feel a bit ashamed now to uh, go through my paper and, 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 and risk of making you forget some of the more theoretical, uh, fascinating things we have been uh, listening to. But I think that there is some connections that, that will emerge from the different papers. Now, over the last years, I've been uh, working in Africa, in two different countries on two very different prophetic movements and I'm not going to establish a comparison between them, except that, uh, as you can see in this one, um, there is one element that I want to underline uh, to start with, which is the presence in uh, these prophetic movements of technologies of writing. Yesterday, we had a workshop in the African Studies Center on technologies of transformation. And uh, one of our chairs, uh, a specialist in Latin America, uh, said something just in passing which actually uh, made me think very deeply about transformation. She said, copying plus creativity, that's transformation. Now, um, we can discuss it even with the person who mentioned that uh, comment if you want later. Um, so far it remains an anonymous comment. But uh, there is quite a lot of uh, copying in prophetic movements around the world. And there is a lot of interest in the anthropology of copying and of uh, my mess and of uh, technology, of borrowing and even stealing, stealing like an artist as the phrase goes. So this person here is an illiterate woman in a farming community in West Africa who has invented a script, has invented an alphabet. And she writes the messages that she receives from God, or probably from an ancestor in her case, uh, but ultimately coming from God. This is her uh, script. And as you can see, a very interesting point that I will develop later is the entanglement between scripture uh, sorry writing and, and, and drawings. Uh, and sometimes it's difficult to say whether the person is writing <laughs> or whether she's trying to draw something. And it's not even very clear in their own uh, explanations or in probably not even in their own mind. They are just trying to uh, express. And what they're expressing, in my interpretation at least, is a series of connections. And, and, and we can see very often, how the topic of connection and of um, interrelations appears in the in their drawings. Uh, in this one, interestingly enough, the writing is in her own, well, in his own in this case. This is a, done by a man. Um, the writing is done in his own writing that he has invented. So this is not uh, Arabic or is not, of course, a Latin script. It's just a, what I call a, glossograph, a glossographic uh, script which can only be read in glossolalia, in in speaking in tongues, and they can only read it when when they are possessed. But interestingly, there is one word written in the Latin script, which is the Creole, and in this case also Portuguese word, mundo, the world. So it's capturing the world. This is what this person is doing. And of course, here we can see how this hyperconnection is also uh, reminding us of the spiderweb. Which incidentally is uh, linked to alphabet in Africa in very many occasions. Unfortunately, David uh, Zeidling is not here today, but he is uh, doing field work on uh, a guy who is inventing an alphabet in, in Cameroon out of uh, spider webs. Um, this is a very interesting drawing in which the person not only is trying to connect things with this uh, very uh, awkward and numeric uh, system, but actually has written also in, in, in the Latin alphabet. Sufri uh, unidade, which means suffer unity, uh, which is a very, very beautiful message that the prophet is trying to convey to his people. You know, we, we are all different here, and we have to suffer unity. Uh, and, and there is a sort of a perspectivism, if you want to call it this way, although I'm not invoking any theories of perspectivism here. But there is a, a, a the notion that the world is looked at from very different angles. The Muslims look at at it in one way, the Christians look at it in another way, and we have all to live together and suffer, that bloody thing we call coexistence. Uh, but of course, you have to learn to uncut as well. If you live uh, in a hyperconnected world, you end up being mad. And this is what often happens with the prophets that I've been studying in West Africa, in, in, in Guinea-Bissau, that they get so uh, obsessed with this hyperconnection of the reality and of the world, <laughs> that they create their own cosmos, their own, their own world. They, 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 they get entangled in a, in a kind of cosmogonic exercise uh, in which they become unable to communicate with their relatives, with their neighbors, uh, and of course with the anthropologists. Uh, and I'm illustrating this uh, with this uh, image of um, Greek moira. And as you remember, the moiras were always represented as weaving, weaving our destiny. But weaving has to be unweaving as well. And Penelope is a very good example of that. Uh, we have to weave and we have to weave. we have to connect and we have to disconnect. Uh, William Plummer, a South African writer, uh, once said that it is the function of creative people to perceive relations between thoughts or things or forms of expressions that seem utterly different and to be able to connect the seemingly unconnected. And I think that this notion of connecting the seemingly unconnected that Plummer is attributing to the artist uh, can also be attributed to the prophet. <coughs> or to the shaman, if you want. Now, I'm giving up now my introduction in West Africa and moving to Central Africa, uh, where I've been doing fieldwork uh, on and off since 2008. And this is in Nkamba, uh, the temple of the Kimbangui Church. And the the Kimbanguist Church is a church that was born in colonial days out of the prophecies of Simon Kimbangu, a very famous prophet who died in 1951, although he is reincarnated in his grandson who still lives in in Kamba. Now in 1978, I'm going to tell you a story now, uh, a man called Wabeladio Pai um, had... An extraordinary set of events happening in his life. He was a Catholic to start with. That's not extraordinary in itself. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it was kind of extraordinary in the setting uh, because most people in in that part of of, of the world are Kimbanguist, And he had a dream which was extraordinary in which Kimbangu, which for Catholics, especially in the 1970s, uh, was like the devil... Uh, Kimbangu was calling him. It was kind of a cult of affliction. Kimbangu was calling him to go to Nkamba. So the young fellow, uh, who was uh, 20 years old at the time, he went to Nkamba, uh, following his dream, against the prohibitions of his family. He was uh, considered as being mad by his by his uh, maternal uncle. He was considered to be crazy by his mother. He went to an anti-witch, uh, he was treated by an anti-witch doctor by the uncle, he was taken to a psychiatric hospital by the mother, uh, and he kept uh, saying, this is Kimbangu who's calling me, I have to follow my dream. So he went to Nkamba, and in the middle of the way to Nkamba, he got stuck, like that. I'm not as good a performer as Catherine, but i do my best to uh, embody uh, Wabiladio. And it's a great, great, great sadness and, and, and tragedy in my life that you uh, died a year ago now. We had made a very, very good friendship, and I was actually uh, engaged in writing his biography, which I want to, to, to accomplish. And I left papers with him. I took him to Lisbon. I, 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 we organized conferences together on, on, on art and prophecy. And it was fantastic to have a, a guy who has invented an alphabet out of a revelation in, in a room. And then he would perform his own being stuckness, and you could see the suffering of someone who's stuck in the ground for five hours, or six hours, sorry, in the middle of the night, under the rain. And then uh, that uh, made, uh, convinced him that he had to go back to, uh, to his village, to his family. He was actually trying to to make what some anthropologists call a complete break with the past, You know, to create himself out of nothing. I come from a Catholic family, but I will be a king and, and, and that convinced him that, 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 that there was something awkward. He went back to the family. Uh, he was beaten up by his uncle, he was uh, attached to a tree for uh, uh, an entire week, and beaten. and he kept on with his dream. And there's a very interesting uh, detail I want to transmit because I think that now I'm embodying his spirit. But when I told him once, uh, when I was recording uh, the life story, I said, God, you've suffered. Uh, he said, "Yes, but this is the message I want you to uh, pass on to the African people, to the African youth that if they have a dream, they have to follow it. so he followed his dream and went to talk to kim bangu 's son uh, and Kimbangu's son told him, Well, my father is preparing you for a mission, and you have to pray, and if you pray your mi- the mission will be revealed Then Kim bangu, sorry, uh, what will I do, my friend this, this guy uh, that I took it walking with him. We did the same walk from uh, Manjagungu to uh, Kint, uh, to Mkamba twice. It's about 50 miles. Uh, it's one of the most wonderful things I've done uh, in my life. And uh, Wabilaio invented. Sorry, Wabilaio locked himself in a, in a. Um, sorry, I'm um, in in this wall. And he was praying for eight months. And one day he woke up and he said to his uh, nephew who was living with him. He said, "Look, the uh, masons when they are uh, building uh, a block of bricks, they are uh, writing fives and twos." And the nephew who I interviewed said, "Well, at that point, I knew that my my uncle was mad." <laughs> <laughs> but then Wobeliger started to um, write the five and two that he saw in the in the in the in the in the wall. And from, the, uh, from these uh, two symbols, these two elementary symbols, he started to develop, combining the two symbols, a system of, uh, of uh, uh, drawings that, in fact, uh, made him look like a real mad person. He just spent days and days and days just writing five and two, five and two, five and two. Not only days and days and days, but months and months and months, and probably years and years and years. Until he realized that um, there was an alphabet there, that there was the possibility of transcribing the language uh, with the symbols that he was inventing. Here, uh, uh, sorry, that's not a very good uh, image, but... um, So this is what praying where he was stuck in the ground Right, here is the uh, explanation that that Wabiladio gave us uh, at some point of uh, the uh, way he saw the two symbols. And then he uh, is explaining us how he started to combine the two symbols after he learned that he had to close uh, the symbols, one to become a six and the other to become a nine. And then the combination of the two with the most elementary uh, five and two gave rise to uh, this uh, set of symbols that then he made rotate and generated other symbols. And all this sounds crazy, and to many people all this is crazy. And a lot of people in Congo today say that he, he was uh, uh, just a lunatic who invented this alphabet uh, that only works in his mind. But this is not true. And Unlike the alphabets that uh, I've described before uh, in West Africa, which are glossographic alphabets, this one actually works. People here are uh, transcribing sounds using these symbols and making an alphabet which is based, as Wabelladio insisted, uh, and his followers insist, is based in the principles of symmetry and rotation. You have a five, you have a two, the five and the two are symmetric, and the five and the two are in a rotational uh, relation. And these two principles of symmetry and rotation are what give rise to the entire uh, Mandombe alphabet. Now, mandombe, which is the name of the alphabet, literally means the script of the blacks. Ndombe is the black people, the African people. And one thing that I am uh, very uh, curious and interested in is why do the uh, Kimbanguists need an alphabet? Or why do the black people need an alphabet if there are already alphabets around? And I think that the answer is that um, the Kimbanguist want to be like everybody else in the world. They want to belong to the global world. They want to be modern. They want to be civilized. They don't want to be excluded. But uh, learning an alphabet that has colonial connotations, that has administrative connotations, that has state connotations, makes them uh, feel uh, different. And it's just the reproduction of of, of this difference. Having an alphabet that was revealed by God to a man who is a Kimbanguist, like uh, Wabeladio, gives the possibility, as my friend was saying, of copying and at the same time innovating. Copying and being different at the same time. Transforming themselves from being illiterate by Congo to being people with an alphabet and with, uh, as they often say, with a civilization. Now, the interesting thing about the alphabet that Wabilagio invented is that it becomes uh, an art, apart from an alphabet. So combining the uh, different elements in uh, very uh, ingenious ways, Wabillaggio manages to show that some figures may emerge out of the grids that he invents. And this is what the artist, uh, this is Wabillaggio explaining in a workshop, how this works. It's a very, very complex system. You really have to know quite a lot of geometry to follow his explanations. And I think that a lot of people who claim that he is mad or that he was mad, uh, they just don't want to, you know, to do the homework. <laughs> um, this is the kind of drawings that he can do. This is what they call the Schema the non interpret skeletal scheme. This is just the, the, the elements of Mandombe put together. This is the work that what Beragio can do, and in fact he realized that he could do that. But now, he cannot create art out of, out of this, because he's not an artist, he's a scientist. He has invented a system based on geometry, based on, on, on rotation, based on symmetry, and he can see that forms may emerge out of these grids that he invents, but he hasn't have the eye of the, of the artist beyond this very elementary uh, figure that he, that, he, that he shows here, which any Mandombe student can do. I mean, that's, that's, that is one step of learning. I mean, when you're learning Mandombe, there is one day, after about three months of learning, that you should be able to do this by, by yourself. Um, this is an artist in Congo, uh, Watandula. he's still alive, who uh, is uh, showing to me uh, how the grid is then transformed into an art. And this is a piece of art that Watandula did, and which is now sitting in my hall here in Oxford, um, which is quite huge. I mean, it's, it's quite a big uh, painting. And, 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 and this painting is based on the elementary symbols of uh, Mandombe, of the elementary uh, two symbols that, that we saw at the beginning of the presentation. Now. Um, These are other uh, examples of mandombe art. Let me just go uh, quickly through them. All these are painters who, uh, in Kinshasa and in Luanda, are painted by the inspiration of Wabelladio. And this is a text, which I will translate to you in case you don't uh, read French, that Wabelladio wrote. And unfortunately, I only discovered this uh, in his wife's uh, archives uh, last summer uh, when I went to express my condolences and to visit his tomb in in Kamba. Uh, it says a, uh, it's, it's a text written in the 1980s, and it's a text which um, in fact shows to me mm. that Juan invented a graphic system before he invented an alphabet. For many, many years he was just playing with these geographic forms before he realized that, 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 that he could attribute sounds to different symbols. But it's very interesting the way he, ex- he expresses his own uh, creative process. And, and remember that this is a guy... Well, sorry for saying remember, I didn't tell you. This is a guy who didn't have a basic... Edu- he had a very basic education, but he did not pursue his studies. Why? Because his maternal uncle, who is the authority figure in, in the family, uh, did not want him to go to school. He wanted him to be a trader, like he was a trader, and a very successful one. It's a very, very wealthy family. But I wanted to go to school. And, and I find it fascinating that, that his mission revealed by God in 1978, when he got stuck in the ground and prayed in front of a wall, is an educative mission. It's about an alphabet. It's about taking people to learn and to develop themselves. He says, a vibrant curiosity has taken us, and he always talks about us. Uh, and you will think that this is uh, a common uh, way of speaking. But it is because he finds, he feels himself always accompanied by Kimbangu, to, of course, whom he conf- I mean, he converted to Kimbanguism as soon as he had the revelation. A a, a vibrant curiosity has taken us to often meditate both about our world as well as about our existence. This meditation provided us with many explanations on all domains, such as science and art. The discoveries we have already achieved are multiple. Many of them are no less than genuine geometrical, scientific, artistic, and other constructions. When we find them in a book, in a decorative painting, certain among them, among these constructions, appear at first Uh, at first sight as impossible to realize. The truth is, their authors have never given them as by enchantment. It was necessary for them to acquire a certain technique because technique is a gun, an automatic one at that. Automatism is acquired by no other means than exercise, repetition, hence the motto, Repetition is the mother of science. And remember that this is a guy who was spending days and days and days and days just doing the same science all over. And he had his books that then his uncle would take and burn, and then he would start again to, to do exactly the same. And it is this, this repetition that actually one day uh, provoked this, this, this kind of, 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 of uh, uh, imaginative production that, that, that gave rise to the, to the alphabet and to the art. Repeated exercise has taken us, like our predecessors, to find something new on composition. And this is what we are conveying to uh, you today in the report that I photographed. In order to arrive there, we have gone from uh, reflection to the discovery of elements. This discovery has pushed us to the valorization, la mise en valeur, of these elements. And from there to the in-depth analysis of the different compositions realized to better underpin our technique. Okay. Now, in, 19, sorry, in 2012, just a few months or a year before he passed away, Wabiladio, a man with no education, who had been uh, uh, deterred from going to school by, by, by his uncle, was nominated Dr. Honoris Causa at the University of Kinshasa. And this is the minister of uh, science uh, greeting Wabiladio. Uh, and introducing Mandombe, the script of the Blacks, into the University of Kinshasa. Mandombe uh, was to be taught at the university, and Wabeladio was already uh, preparing a series of teachers that would help him in Kinshasa, but also in Lumumbashi and Kisangani, the three big cities in Congo, where the uh, Mandombe was to be introduced by an official decree uh, sa- signed by this man. This has to do with uh, politics of religion in Congo, actually. I mean, this man was, was, was making sure that the Kimbanguists were kept happy because the Kimbanguists are very, very strong supporters of uh, Kabila, who actually uh, had just got uh, renewed as a president. Thanks, among other things, to the support of the Kimbanguists. People in the University of Kinshasa got very, very annoyed. And as one of them said, uh, uh, they have just let a Crazy man uh, entering into the uh, university, uh, and not unsurprisingly, uh, today many people, many friends, including many relatives of Wabbladio, assume that uh, or think or have the hypothesis that Wabbladio has in fact been uh, assassinated, which I think it's very unlikely because he died of a of a, a, a liver failure, but uh, there are suspicions. That indicate that he may have been eliminated by the people who didn't want him to enter into the university, which reproduces a very typical uh, um, uh, theme in Kimbangu's history, which is that of persecution and and, and, and and suffering. So the fact that that Kimbangu has been assassinated for the Kimbanguists and for the people who want to learn Mandombé is not going to deter them to deter them from 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 studying it and from as this uh, drawing says, from going back to school and learning a new script and becoming something else by imitating uh, other models of transformation and adding to this imitation. A very unique, I think, uh, and original and quite clever and, indeed, very well-working imaginative uh, practice and creativity. So I think I'll... uh, uh,
3: Well, first thing I want to say, and I will keep my comments incredibly short because um, I'm sure the rest of you would like to get into the discussion as soon as possible. We're already running a little bit late, but um, I just wanted to congratulate uh, my three colleagues on their wonderful and creative presentations. Uh, in fact, um, in preparing for this uh, session when I didn't know what you were going to say, one of the first uh, things that I was, um, was hoping that would happen would be that your uh, talks would touch on the notion of creativity in relation to your own work uh, up to a point. In kind of reflexive sense particularly because we are doing these sessions in the context of uh, the discussion of interdisciplinarity um, so uh, and I felt that um, in all of your talks today there was a degree to which um, as Marilyn Strathern tells us in that paper we were asked to read um, that we might be finding those points of creativity in our own work as anthropologists coming precisely out of of a number of things one which is the the meeting of di- different disciplines and different um, techniques and uh, skills that are required to perform within those different disciplines and to uh, to uh, to have precision within those disciplines um, uh, but the other thing is the idea of the crea- of the engagement within your own work with with individuals who are identified either by you or by themselves of self-identifying as creative whether they're dancers writers Um, uh, prophetic uh, individuals who create new scripts and so on. Um, So uh, I was really uh, fascinated to hear that and uh, I would like to hear more in a way about how you feel in terms of your own work in terms of processing the idea of dealing with I think one of you said you know this well Caroline said at the beginning the ephemerality of the creative or the imaginative process that it's very hard to pin down so how are you doing that as, um, as uh, particularly as anthropologists um, uh, and the other thing I think um, uh, came up in Susanna's presentation again was about um, in a way the ephemeral ephemerality of the product and especially when we're talking about sort of oral situations Anyway, so um, as I say, I I really don't um, feel I should say very much in relation to the the, the huge amount of rich material we've listened to. But as it turns out, the one thing that I had thought about in advance in terms of thinking about creativity and how we might um, uh, define it was precisely the question that has actually come up in various different ways in each three of your talks, which is about the notion of copying or the notion of rules or the notion of how do you create within... I mean, to what extent is creativity actually the product of knowing a set of rules, um, and then learning how to play with them, um, and even deviate from them, from them quite dramatically. And I think that probably applies, I mean, I'd be interested again to have a conversation with all of us in this room about to what extent is the academic process in terms of writing and everything else that we do, the writing of an ethnography, potentially a creative process, but within which, of course, we have to know the rules, and we spend most of our time with our students in you know, inflicting the rules on them. Um, and to what extent does, you know, do, do we acknowledge that by learning those rules, we are then able to deviate and be creative with them anyway in um, in pursuit of this question um, and you know just uh, 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 thinking about um what um, creativity might mean in relation to um and uh, the degree to which it involves a kind of copying um which by the way uh, was a topic that was much discussed here right in this literally in this museum in our you know in in, in Oxford anthropology in the late 19th century. Um, in evolutionary approaches to art. In fact, Henry Balfour has this wonderful um, experiment where he um, asked a group of students to copy a picture of a, s- a snail on a twig. And basically, I could reproduce this exercise in this room, where basically the picture of the snail on the, on the, on the twig is passed to the first person in the room. He, they copy it. The next person then copies it again. And in the process, um, some, some people who self-identify as artists transform these drawings so what he was looking for in this was, was a notion that uh, basically copying is the first principle that all of us are capable of copying and then certain individuals are capable of a certain kind of transformation a kind of creativity is inserted and then in this wonderful I'm afraid I didn't bring the slide today but in this wonderful experiment with the picture of a, what starts as a snail on a, on a stick ends up as a bird so, through the process of copying and through the insertion of certain kinds of uh, the agency of certain creative individuals, you get a totally different product. Anyway, that's the old evolutionary, uh, evolutionary uh, evolution in art kind of theorization of copying. But this is a more, um, more contemporary one, which, um, <coughs> which I found uh, uh, really interesting. This is um, a man called Kirby Ferguson, who's got a project called Everything is Remix. And basically, the Re- everything is remix. Project is about the notion that there is no such thing as you know the kind of myth of creativity. That that notion that creativity is something only a certain number of unique individuals have. Um, uh, he's trying to blow that apart by looking at things like product design, of course, looking at music um, and uh, the way that um, uh, so as the, uh, the name implies, the remixing process in music. Anyway, and he this is um, uh, a kind of quote is a quote from him. Creativity isn't magic. It happens by applying ordinary tools to thought to existing materials and the soil from which we grow our creations is something we scorn and misunderstand <clears throat> even though it gives us so much and that's copying I, he's, he's arguing that basically you know, the repetition the copying is, is the soil that actually produces something exciting and you have to keep repeating in order to be able to get to this point of um, doing something different uh, hence the picture of Bob Dylan uh, from I think from a film that was made in relation to his, uh, his first album which apparently co- includes eight cover versions so i.e. even the great people <laughs> the great men such as Bob uh, Bob Dylan, um, starts by copying and ends up uh, creating something new. And in fact, uh, this is a a diagram that comes from um, Kirby's uh, website project, the Remix project, which I thought was just useful, again, going back to models which have been coming up and diagrams and coming up all this term. um, The basic elements of creativity apparently are, you start by copying, then second phase is transforming based on the units that you have copied and then you can do, then you start to combine. I think actually probably each three of those elements relates to, to interrelate to one another um, but, uh, but what I think it points out that is that uh, in all these creative um, activities that we've heard about in the presentation today and equally perhaps in the way that we think as anthropologists and as, um, as teachers is that we start with a process of copying, that there's a degree to which rules are there which we have to learn and then we can start to deviate from them. So um, thank you, that's all I wanted to say for now.